Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash to pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And it's Friday the 13th again. <gasps> you know what that means. No. What does it mean? Well, back when we started the podcast, we swore to you that we would cover every film of the Friday the 13th franchise every single time there's a Friday the 13th. And although formats have slightly changed, we've matured. Hopefully got better, a little funnier. Um, we've discussed many, many films. We're in the late 200s now. And we're still fucking bringing you to Friday the 13th yeah. films. You've seen Pamela Voorhees slash her way for a bunch of teenagers. You've seen her son get a growth spurt and come back and kill a bunch of people with a sack on his head. You've heard us discuss Jason in 3D. You've heard us discuss his death. The imitator that is Roy. You've heard us discuss Jason coming back as a zombie, and now you're hearing us discuss. You're gonna hear us discuss Jason going up against a carry imitator in Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven: The New Blood from 1988, or as it was also known by fans and crew and cast members alike, Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> Do you care to explain that? Yes, few of the actors were secretly gay at the time uh, during production, including Craig Thomas and Kevin Spertus. And uh, over the years, it gained the nickname Friday the 13th. And the other films in the franchise are then nicknamed Fry Straight the, the 13th. <laughs> um, Susan Blue yeah. as well. And um, William Butler yeah. were also queer. Um Secretly gay, I'm not sure. <laughs> Is that the term we want to be? Not out yet. Not out. Um, not unfortunately, out. obviously, this film was released in 1988. Yes. Where being an out actor um, was pretty much a death sentence to your career. Yeah. I mean, look a few years earlier in Sister Franchise and that man on the street. What happened to Mark Patton? Absolutely. Um. This, analysing this for the podcast, this film's pretty fucking gay. And you know what? I've never noticed that before now. I think you look at it in a different way. Yeah. Um, But yeah, there are moments where it's like, okay. I'm not sure if they're deliberate or not, or we just, you know, as gay people... I mean... We do enjoy projecting uh, queerness onto films because it, it helps us to... No, appreciate being gay. Yeah, I do. You know, when there's no, yeah. when there's nothing there, you kind of create it yourself, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really cool. And you know, it's a really cool part of being queer is being able to do that and saying, "Oh, come join our team." Yeah, <laughs> in a way, yeah. if you know what I mean. Um, so this is the film that was originally intended to bring Jason and Freddy together on mm. screen for the first time. However, when Paramount Pictures, which at the time had the rights to Friday the 13th, and New Line Cinema, which had the rights to Nightmare on Elm Street, couldn't agree behind the scenes, the script was rewritten to put Jason up against a telekinetic Tina Shepard instead, based on Carrie White. According to New Blood screenwriter, uh, this concept more or less came about due to a last-second idea thrown out during a story pitch. An actual crossover wouldn't have been possible as MGM owned the rights to Stephen King's novel Carrie. Also, Carrie died in the book and the film, so her appearing in the film just wouldn't make any sense. 
also Sissy Spacek was absolutely slaying the game <laughs> post carry. I mean, I'm disappointed. Would never have been in Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven. I'm disappointed. Could you imagine Sissy Spacek against Jason Voorhees? I would I very much appreciate that. <laughs> I would uh, with a better script. Yes, <laughs> better um, screenplay. I'm sure. Very much the entire franchise from this point onwards is a case of what the fuck were they thinking? <laughs> but that's also kind of true for part six to a certain degree. It was, but as we discussed on our episode for part six, it's very much a self-aware parody to a certain yes. extent. You know, it's full of, it's ahead of its time, full of meta in jokes at the series and ends up being one of the franchise's best films because of that, you know, in a film where Jason is resurrected like a zombie in the style of Godzilla, it's, you know, less ridiculous when the rest, when it's shortly followed by him doing a James Bond imitation and, you know, killing off a bunch of paintballers and leaving a face implant and smiley face on the tree. It's, it kind of, it all fit. It all, it all felt right. It all flowed a little better because it didn't take itself seriously. Instead, it poked fun at the franchise. This film, on the other hand, takes itself very seriously. <laughs> Way too seriously. So does most of the films, so do most of the films going forward. And, and I, I tell you now, this, this franchise has no rights going to the places it goes to from this point on. The franchise has started out with Pamela Voorhees just getting revenge for her son's death. You spoiler alert, you got this one with the telekinesis. Then we're going to Manhattan. Uh, AKA we're on a boat for a long time, and then mm. eventually in Manhattan for ten minutes. Yeah. Then Jason's a slug. An evil killer slug. Then he goes to space. I mean I I think come on. For Friday the thirteenth. <laughs> Uh, and it's also kind of true for Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and if you are listening to this on the day of release, October the uh, 13th, 2023, you'll know that we're in the middle of a Nightmare on Elm Street yes. series of podcast episodes for Halloween. Appropriately, earlier this week, we discussed Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which was released same year as this. Mm. Also... Released the same year as Halloween 4, Return of Michael Myers. Yeah. So horror sequels were big. But I feel like more than any of the others, Friday the 13th, during the 80s, just threw out films. Yeah. Like really just year after year, with no real connection or consistency between them. Um, Yes, you had your Tommy Jarvis trilogy, but... Even those three films weren't that connected. Like, really. There's some, yeah, iffy. And so they go wild in the aisles. Yeah. They, they go crazy with things because they're like, well, how are we going to top the previous one? What can we do to make this more memorable if we're throwing out films every single year? Yeah. Like, what do we need to do to keep Jason relevant? And I feel with this one, it kind of jumps the shark. This, yeah, I would say this is the first one that jumps the shark just because of how serious it takes itself. Yeah, absolutely. It's a ridiculous premise. 
um, completely supernatural, and they think it's influenced in part by the success of A Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. because it takes it completely to the supernatural, mm-hmm. but forgets to have its those tongue-in-cheek moments, yeah. and takes it very seriously as a very serious slasher film. Um, obviously, we're going to sit here and discuss why I believe that, um, but I, I have to say, this one was maybe the most that felt like a chore getting the notes together for the episode and to watch and I just think, oh, you know? Yeah. How how am I going to make this funny? Yeah. Which ultimately is what I'm here to do. I'm kind of the opposite. (laughs) So I'm kind of the opposite. So I'll be your entertainer this episode. Yeah. And uh, also I have a bit of nostalgia with this one, which might explain why I appreciate it a lot. More right. Um, I mean, I don't think it's a masterpiece. I don't think it's anywhere near the franchise's best. Um, but I like it. It's, there's something there that it's like you said. It is forgettable. Mm. But when I watch it again, I'm like, oh, I do. I do like this one. I I don't love it, but I like it. Um, despite how ridiculous it is and everything. But when I was younger, before I started watching, you know, horror films in full, and before the obsession began. Um, I turned on Sky Movies, and it was the scene where Tina's mum is... She's having the vision of her being killed in the middle of the road mm-hmm. uh, by Jason. And that's the first thing I saw of the Friday the 13th franchise. Um, scared the hell out of me at the time, because, like, again, you know, I was scared of everything back then. Um, and really confused me when my first full horror film was the original Friday the 13th, and Jason wasn't there. Um, but yeah, that, that little memory. Um, I, I mean, is this is this film responsible for my love of horror? No. <laughs> it's the one that kickstarted it. That one little clip. <laughs> mm, no, I'm going to say no. Made me curious. Yeah. Um, the gay one, appropriately. Um, but yeah, so let's, let's talk about who made it. Directed by John Carl Buckler, who did Troll, Cellar Dweller, Rage War, Ghoulies Free, Ghoulies Go to College. Oh. Grandpa's Place, Curse of the 49er, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and more. And he also did special effects for The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones, Halloween 4, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Hatchet, The Ginger Dead Dead Man, Carnosaur Free, Primal Species, available in every CX near you, Bride of Reanimator, Dolls from Beyond, and more. So he worked with... Um, Charles Band. Yes. Um, he has publicly fumed many times, and understandably so, about the number of edits required for the M- by the MPAA yeah. to avoid an X rating. So, obviously, back then, they, were, they got to a point where they were so much stricter than, uh, than earlier in the 80s, where the Friday the 13th films got away with actually quite a lot which I'm quite fortunate with, considering what the UK was going through at that point with the video nasties. Mm. Um, but at this point, the MPAA cut down and they put the foot down. And for me, when I think of this era and the films that suffered the most from it, this is always the first one that comes to mind. Because I genuinely think this plays, a, this plays a big part in why this film isn't great. It's, it's a huge part. You look at something like, and this is always my favourite example, but you look at something like My Bloody Valentine. Um, when I watched the cut version, which was all that was available for the longest time, I was like, this is a good film. This is, you know, 
good slasher film. I really like it. When I watched the uncut version with all the deaths restored, I fucking love this film. This mm. is a masterpiece. And that's yeah. the thing. It can, you know, it's just a bit of gore, but it can make the biggest difference in a horror film, especially in a slasher film. It, it really, slasher films, a lot of them live and die on their special effects. They really do. Because this is Friday the 13th, yeah. 7. We've had seven of these bitches now. And they've all been so gory. But they have. You know, there's a formula to it that makes them successful. You're not... I mean, you're trying with the whole carry aspect, but you're you're not reinventing the wheel here. So you need to stick to it and be like, yeah, we need gore. Gore is a huge part. And I do feel bad because I am going to spend a little time bad-mouthing this film. Mm. Um, But a huge part of why I didn't like it is yeah really so dry it's when it comes to the death scenes it's awkward it's really awkward it looks like jason just taps them and they die yeah you know it's it makes for some really bad editing at times um it had to be submitted nine times to the mpaa before being granted an r rating um, it's the most heavily censored entry in the franchise. The original cut deaths and many deleted scenes only exist in the form of rough workprint footage. The original master daily of material was supposedly destroyed by Paramount, so an unrated director's cut is unfortunately impossible. I think one of the problems with that, and we've said it many times on the podcast, I think one of the problems the film has in terms of the MPAA, was that it took itself too seriously. Yeah. yeah. I think if it had been like part six, which was more comical, yeah. I think it would have gotten away with a lot more of the gore. I do think films like this, because they were big box office successes, mm-hmm. were used as examples, as, or they had more of an eye on them yeah. from the MPAA and from... Mothers Against Horror Films, or whatever yeah. they were. Um, whereas, weirdly, in the UK, it was the little VHS films that no fucker had heard of until yeah. they were banned. Mm-hmm. Like, no no one had heard of any of these cheapo, shitty, Nazi-sploitation films yeah. until some old cow got on the TV and said, now we don't want you to watch yeah. these. Well, now we want to watch them. Yeah. Um, whereas in America, I do... You know, am I remembering correctly? I think Dream Master was teetering on the edge of, you know, how far they could go in terms of the Dream Master. The Dream, funny enough, next week's episode, The Dream Child suffered with the MPAA. Which is the year after this. Yeah. So it's around this time that you see these things. And I'm sure there was numerous big stories in the papers saying... This film made my dog fly and kill a goose. I don't know. Shit like that. I mean, you're not far off from what was said in the UK. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I said a fly. Don't fly and The director uh, stated that he clashed with associate producer Barbara Sachs continuously over many ideas he had for the film. This included showing Jason and Matt for quite a bit in the film. She vetoed the idea, but he ended up going back, going behind her back and filming it anyway. He also stated that the final sequence of Tina's father coming out of the water 
don't ask. We'll no, get there. We'll get there. Was to be more elaborate and feature four prosthetics and a life-size dummy. That sequence was completely overruled. And he ended up filming what he considers uh, an inferior version of the idea. I mean, the idea shouldn't be there in the first place. But still, Barbara Sachs, another bizarre character who didn't like horror films, mm. but was producing the Friday the 13th films. What the fuck's that all about? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a tale as old as time in terms of directors, producers, stars of horror films. You can tell when they don't like horror films. Yeah. And you can really fucking tell if these people creating horror films love horror films. Yeah. It's, I think, more than any other genre, horror films are divisive. Yeah. They really, you know, people don't like them. There are people who refuse to watch Mm -hmm. any horror films, which is perfectly reasonable. Yeah. And those people shouldn't be making horror films. Absolutely not. You know, I'm living for this franchise, having a you know female producer at this point. Mm. But if the female producer is going to be against the film, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not really empowering to try and take down a horror film with what's making a horror film. It's pointless. It, it, it makes you question what she believed a horror film yeah. should have. It's written by Daryl Honey, who did Mockingbird, Don't Sing, Fascination, Surveillance, Lady Chatterley's Stories, Karma Sutra, Bedtime Stories, Forbidden Sins, Animal Instincts 2, Daddy's Boys, Play Murder for Me, and Extra Free, and many more. Wow, there's some... The king uh, of erotic thrillers. Exactly. I'm looking at these posters and I am living for them. Uh-huh. Look at Jennifer Rubin on that yeah. one, Gary. I know, what a queen. Amazing. Yeah. She's beautiful and bad. She's beautiful and bad, definitely. And it's co-written by Manuel Fidello and this was his only film. Oh, okay. Daryl Haney was fired after his agent contacted executive producer Frank uh, Mancuso Jr. and told him that uh, Haney wouldn't be uh, working anymore on projects unless he received a large pay increase, even though Haney had never told his agent to do any such thing. The screenplay was completed by a second unknown writer, Manuel Fidello. Oh... So, a bit shitty of Daryl Honey's agent. Yeah. <laughs> what's that about? I don't think agents are the nicest people no. from what I've gathered from documentaries and Scream 4. Themselves oh. and Scream 4. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, based on characters by an uncredited Victor Miller and an uncredited Sean S. Cunningham. Mm. Uh, the, the two that have been battling it out for years for these fucking rights. Thank you, A24, for finally doing something. Uh, budget. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's A24, isn't it? Uh-huh. The Crystal Lake. Pamela Crystal Lake, the TV series. Who's playing Pamela? Do we know? No idea. Oh. But we do who, know... Who looks like Betsy Palmer? Who... Oh, I don't know. But we do know who's in it. Oh, who? Our original final girl. Adrian King. Adrian King. No way. She's back. Yeah. Really? Uh-huh. Oh. What's the film going to be? It makes, you, it makes you wonder if it's going to be a requel. It might be. You know? Oh, yeah, because of part two. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But no, but it's also supposed to be Pamela Voorhees' story, a prequel. So, so is it going to be a bit like Bates Motel? Maybe. I hope that it... it's the story and then Rihanna pops up and yes. we get the... Yeah. As, as, uh, as Adrian King. <laughs> as Adrian King. <laughs> I hope so. And I hope Adrian King plays Pamela Voorhees. I hope so. Um, budget, $2.8 million. Um, and do you know what? Honestly, this franchise costs nothing to make. By, by today's standards, that's a micro-budget. Yeah. Um, and they've even said, you know, on the documentary Camp uh, Crystal Lake Memories, which I highly recommend, it, it, this franchise costs nothing to make. Mm. But then at the box office, this made $19.1 million. Yeah. So they were just massive money-making machines. They were. And it got... I so I did a little research for Friday the 13th. It seemed to get a little less each time. Whereas by 1988... Um, Nightmare on Elm Street was at its peak. Yeah. With Dream Master. It yeah. Took a huge amount of money. Um, whereas I think this was the lowest up until that point. I think it just gets lower mm. and then I, I, I'm assuming Jason goes to hell. Just yeah. Um, you know, you said you wanted to know Barbara Sachs or she thought she was going with this. Yes. Well, she wanted this. Mm. I shit you not. And, you know, I can't verify my sources. I got this off the internet. But I hope this is true. And with her hate and horror, it makes sense. Mm. She wanted this to be the film that's a follow-up to Zombie Jason. She wanted this to be the most prestigious Friday the 13th film yet. She intended for the film to win an Academy Award and attempted to get, brace yourself, Federico Fellini... To direct it. Uh, Needless to say, she was unsuccessful on both accounts. Oh Oh my God. Right. Girl, you are fucking delusional. Um, I don't think that has ever or will ever happen (laughs) when the seventh (laughs) film in a slasher film franchise... Um, wins an Academy Award after being directed by one of the most prestigious directors of all time. <laughs> I mean, what a turn that would be. I Imagine. Mean, I, um, <laughs> I mean, what do we even say? I, I suppose New Nightmare? I would love to seven. see. I'd love to see her idea for a script. Um, oh, bitch, don't even get me started on New Nightmare and how that should have been. How the Langenkamp should have got a number. I suppose Halloween. Was there ever a Halloween set? Oh, no. Hey, that's um, Halloween set H2O. H2O. Oh, yeah. Ingmar Bergman presents <laughs> Halloween H2O. I mean, we've had, you know, Halloween 2018 was uh, an elevated sequel with a phenomenal lead performance. But it wasn't directed so by Frederick. It would not. It would, but it certainly wouldn't have been nominated wouldn't, for an no. Oscar. But we all know that's really why Jamie Lee got her Oscar. Um, I think Jamie Lee got her Oscar because she was a producer on three really fucking successful films. And she's got a very long and storied history in film of making films that make some fucking dollars. And as as we've now seen... That people really enjoy and like to go and watch. Well, yeah. I mean, as we've now seen with an example from a recently released film... She could even make shitty directors better as well. But anyway, 
We're not here to talk about Jamie Lee making David Gordon Green a better director. We're here to talk about Friday the 13th we New are. Blood and who's in it. Yeah, in a section we like to call... Right, gay. I know you. If the microphone didn't pick that up, it's just going to sound fucking awkward. It's going to sound really awkward. <laughs> Gary was doing an impression of uh, Thelma Blair in Scream 2. <laughs> so. If you know, you know. If you don't, then look it up. Kane Hodder mm-hmm. makes his debut appearance as Jason Voorhees. Yes. Because the director was so impressed with him when he ate live worms on the set of prison that he pushed for Paramount Pictures to let him cast Hodder in the role of Jason. If it had not been for his persistence, the role would have gone back to C.J. Graham from part six. Okay. Kane Hodder. His dressing room was a quarter of a mile down a dirt road and one night filming ended at 2 a.m. And while still in the costume, he decided to walk through the woods on the path to his dressing room. As he was walking, someone approached him and asked if he was with the movie. He didn't reply because he thought it was a pretty stupid question to ask. No. Uh, and he was standing there in full Jason costume. When the guy asked again, Kane Hodder took a lunge at him and grunted. The guy took off, tripping and running. The next day, uh, the director told Kane and the uh, that the local sheriff stopped by, um, but he never showed. He was supposed to stop by. Um, Kane Hodder's book. Unmasked, the true story of the world's most prolific cinematic killer. Yeah. He notes that one of his fondest memories of this shoot was uh, the film's costume department making his mum a costume. A crew member's jacket that says Jason's mum. Which he found very amusing. He says that she would wear it during the whole final two decades up until her passing. He noted that it would be over 90 degrees Fahrenheit in his hometown of Sparks, Nevada, she would still proudly wear it to the grocery store, hoping someone would say something. In case they inquired, her purse was loaded with signed autographs that he would send to her that were leftovers from his convention appearances. He noted that at times it got playfully embarrassing, but because it made her beam with pride, he also loved it and holds on to it as a positive memory. And I, I, I think that's very sweet. I think that is really sweet. And I, I do always forget just how big these films were. Yeah. Um... Box office wise, uh-huh. in particular, I do forget they were a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, they really yeah. were, and I I always forget that with Kane Hodder. I'm not finished. I'm not finished. Oh, he also and Are this is probably talking about his mum. No, no, this is probably the biggest one. Um, on his whole career, this made such a big impact on him. It takes up a big part of the documentary, uh, and it's a very interesting fact about this film. This film set a record for longest uninterrupted on-screen control burn in Hollywood history. I see. To accomplish this effect, they used a rigged uh, apparatus to actually capture the ignition on film. In that moment, you're actually watching Kane Hodder truly being set on fire. An effect which normally accomplished at the time uh, via trick photography. Hodder stayed on fire for a record set in 40 seconds and was hospitalised for it. You're saying Kane Hodder? Uh, yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's one thing that this film showcases, and it's one of the best parts of the film, is just how wonderful of a stuntman Kane Hodder yes. is. Yeah. Um, I always thought Kane Hodder played Jason more before this point. Yeah. 
because it was always the name that was synonymous with Jason. Uh-huh. It was always, and I remember the whole hoo ha with Freddy versus Jason yeah. and Kane Hodder. Not. So I was always under the impression that Kane Hodder had played um, Freddy. Jason. I'm Jason. getting confused. It's, it's Halloween he, season. He played Freddy's hand. <laughs> he did. Uh, but he played Jason more than he actually had yeah. up until this point. Um, what I also didn't realise, maybe a little bit of a spoiler, is that he played Jason in the worst, <laughs> the worst films. <laughs> like, <laughs> he did. And I feel bad. And he seems like a really nice guy. And we watched the documentary on him. He feels so, we met him. He, we, we met, met him. him. He we was did. so nice. He was so nice. And I was so pleased for him. But the more I think about it, we're like, oh, he started like part seven and it really went downhill from that point. And I'm not saying he's to blame for it. Because <laughs> no. he does his job really well. But I'm just like, oh, poor him. <laughs> he's a force as Jason. And I, I know you you obviously struggle to I have my separate them, you know. I like CJ Graham, because mm. I feel he delivers some oddly physical comedy in a way. I can I can separate him from the rest of the bunch. Okay. Part three one, I think it's the creepiest guy to play Jason. My best example is the harpoon scene where he just puts it down, looks down and walks away like really slowly without any remorse. I think that's really creepy in a very silly film. Kane Hodder is like an unstoppable force. I don't know how much of that you could put on Kane Hodder and how much of that you could put on the direction and the design of Jason. Because mm. I think he looks fantastic. This is a fantastic design for Jason. The Jason Goes to Hell one is my favourite Jason design. Mm. You know, um, where he's completely let himself go and the mask has just sunk into his skin. Barely see him in mm. the film, but, you know, when he's on screen, he looks great. He's very good at what he does. But then, when you take three and six out of the equation, you could have told me Kane Hodder played him in all the other films. I wouldn't know the difference. Except for the remake and Freddy vs. Jason, where he's inexplicably really fucking tall. Yeah. He's (laughs) gross, but in his 60s. (laughs) I do. do. And, you know, maybe it's on me more than on the uh, actors themselves. But I do find it difficult to differentiate between who plays Jason in any yeah. of these films. Yeah. I just don't see it. I don't see uh, what is scripted and yeah. what they've brought to it. Maybe I should do better research. I think research. Kane Hodder brought a lot to this. More, I... What's the word? It's not ad-libbed because he's not speaking. but um, Improvised. Improvised. Yeah. A little more improvisation, maybe. Yeah, like the way he... And I know he's discussed like the way he breathes, the way he turns his head and then the rest of his mm. body. You know, he's put a lot into it, so fair play to him. But, but I will say his stunt he, work is yeah, phenomenal. He's, yeah, and he's stunt. the right build for Jason, yeah. you know. Uh, he plays Jason's in, in, sadly, in parts 7 to 10. Uh, he was in Monster, Daredevil, The Devil's Rejects, The Hatchet franchise as Victor Crowley. Now mm. that is fucking Kane Hodder doing a fucking great performance. Yeah, he that that I that I think his performance as Victor Crowley is better than his performance as Jason Voorhees because he can express himself a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was part in the franchise where he played his own dad, and he, you know, he really made that his own. And I appreciate that a lot more because these were little small films and not a lot of people had watched, and he really just gave it his all. Yeah, 
Uh, Wishmaster, of course, recently we discussed Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, House 2 and 4, and more. Did stunts for... Because I think we may have done his Hey, I Know You before, but never mentioned his stunts. No. He did stunts for Seven, Hocus Pocus, Batman Forever, Spawn, Enemy of the State, Demolition Man, Four Rooms, oh. Lethal Weapon Free, and so many more. Wow. Really, really prolific when it comes to being a stuntman. Nice. Monster. Yeah. The yeah. Monster that Shalise from. The Sh- yeah, yeah, I've just realised that that's the monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Really cool. Um, Larpart Lincoln plays Tina. She does. <laughs> a role that could have been played by Kerry Noonan. Ring a bell? From part six. Paula in part six. I never, I she... know, I, do you know what? I never forget, never forget Paula from part six. My favourite. Well, apparently so. I'm, I'm very impressed, actually. Yeah, um... I'm a really big fan of Paula from part six. Um, she read for the role of Tina when she thought the title was Birthday Bash. And then when she realised it was a Friday the 13th film, she confessed that she'd starred in the last one and the director let her go. Also, turned down, was Marta Koba who appeared in Friday the 13th, part two. The director originally wanted uh, Paula Irvine to play the role of Tina because she was 19 years old at the time and had the perfect teenage look and the personality he was looking for. Unfortunately, Paula already made commitments to start as Liz in Phantasm 2, so John was unable to cast her for the role. As John was running out of time and was not able to find a real teenager between 18 and 19, uh, he had no choice but to cast Larpart Lincoln, who was 26 years old at the time. Compared to other ones in the franchise, doesn't look Actually it. doesn't, you know. She had to wear a lot of makeup to look approximately eight years younger than she looked at the time. So the audience would think she's a teenager. Uh, producers also liked, and I'm interested to hear your opinion on this, how she resembled Sissy Spacek um, and gave that sort of Carrie vibe. Um, right. Yeah. Sissy okay. Spacek's twin. Um, not not quite. <laughs> um, do you know what I would say? And w- when we watched the documentary, it was more apparent. She was giving me um, Hilary Duff. Yeah. Which I'm living for. Hilary Duff is my, you know, queen from the early 2000s. Love Hilary Duff. Um, that's what she was given. Mm. So I- I'm all for that. I mean, obviously, Lizzie McGuire wasn't a psychic. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, not psychic, telekinetic. My apologies. I'm sure someone is someone was frothing at the mouth then at me saying <laughs> I mean it's just a shame that her performance is stiff as a board. Um but you Oh know, my it's... god, it is yeah. Are we, are we talking about looking like Sissy Spacek or acting like Sissy Spacek? It just says resembles. Resemble. I was gonna say because Sissy Spacek is, in my opinion, maybe the best actress. Well, maybe Larpart Lincoln's better in Knott's Landing, Ghost Party, Children of the Night, The Princess Academy, House 2, The Second Story. Don't remember her in that. Oh, what? I do. Yeah? Yeah. No, you don't. An episode yes, of... I do, because I remember saying, oh, look, it's Hilary Duff. Oh, wait, no, it's uh, the girl from Part 7. Okay. An episode of Freddy's Nightmares, Fatal Charm, and many more, including, of course... Murder, she wrote. Yeah, Angela Lansbury stealing those slasher icons. Absolutely. Um. Also, having a little look online, 
she was quite frequently on QVC. Ah. Um, I couldn't see any clips or anything or any evidence to back it up apart from people mentioning that she was fairly prolific oh, that's on amazing. QVC, which I'm living for. Yeah. I love QVC. <laughs> Kevin Spurtas. QVC helps me sleep at night. Someone, someone who probably wishes he was on QVC. Kevin Spurtas uh, plays Nick. Uh, and uh, he didn't get along with Lyle Park Lincoln. Um, a mid-2000s convention appearance brought them together under much calmer non-film-related circumstances. They soon began having dinner after an appearance regularly. And soon after becoming very, they became very close friends. She even noted that he sang to her daughter as she took the crown for Miss Texas uh, just some years before. High camp. That's camp. Gay Kevin Spurters, the love interest from the New Blood, singing to his love interest's daughter. <laughs> High camp. <laughs> The two now chuckle that they didn't get along initially and they're very close-knit friends. Oh, Go on, girlies. That's good. I'm living for that. He was also in After Forever, Days of Our Lives, Daredevil, The Hills of Eyes Part 2, Friends, Who Killed Buddy Blue, Raging Angels, Silk Stalkins, of course, So Species 2, 3 and 5, and more. Yeah, um, I think quite prolific in soap operas. Yeah. Um, little Broadway work from what I'd seen, and um, I think he has done some writing for um, like an online series oh. about um, a game. Forgive me, I can't remember the name of it, but about a gay man who loses his husband quite late in life. Oh. He won quite a few awards and he's been nominated for daytime Emmys and, and nice. such. So, yeah, really, really cool to see him blossom. Yeah. afterwards because if he had come out uh, in 1988 mm. before the film you know who knows what would have happened yeah. it's nice to see it's it's just get better mm-hmm. not to sound too cheesy but it's true it does get better I, I just really want to know the video of him singing at Miss Texas yeah. is online because <laughs> I want to watch it I also really want to know what these subspecies films are have you seen any? <laughs> no there's loads of them bloody hell <laughs> Uh, Susan Blue plays Mrs. Shepherd, Amanda. She was in Cars, the vo- very, very prolific voice actress in Cars, the Transformers, the movie, your, one of your favourites. Yes. Um, oh, have you yes. seen who she plays in that? I have. RC. Queen. Queen RC. Um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the 80s and 90s. Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Toxic Crusaders. The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. And many more, including a regular role on Gem. Nice. As multiple voices. Yeah. Um, And finally, I have Terry Kisser, who plays Dr. Cruz. He was the corpse in Weekend at Bernie's 1 and 2. Six Pack, The Golden Girls, Tammy and the T-Rex, Murder, She Wrote, The New Adventures of Superman, A Christmas Tree Miracle, and more. Oh, of course he was. He was there. I remember in Golden Ghost. Golden Ghost. He was the guy who holds them up at Christmas. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, I remember because that's the episode we've watched the most. It is. Yeah, <laughs> King. Wow. Living it. Living it. Living it. Living it and loving it. Go on. You're either on Golden Girls or you're on Murder, She Wrote or yeah. Silk Stalking. Or actually not in a slasher film. Or actually not in a slasher film. 
<laughs> That's what they say in casting. Like, yeah. Have you been in... Do you plan stuck? on <laughs> being on the same <laughs> show as Angela Lansbury? Yeah. Uh, do you have any more, or should I, we talk about I don't our feature think presentation? I, I, don't, I don't, to be fair. And, and this is it's quite indicative of slasher films. The reason, one big reason why slasher films and these horror sequels are so cheap to make is that they cast complete unknowns. Yeah. And they probably didn't pay them a huge amount. No. Um... So that's probably why on the documentary... Oh my god, this film is so cheap to make. How much did it cost? Can you remember? Uh, Like 2.4 million. 2.4 yeah. million. This today... Yeah. You'd spend 2.4 million on getting someone half famous, like C-list. That's true. To be in the film, you know? You're also saying this on the month where we've had the longest Hey I Knows and we've only discussed slasher films. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, it's, it's people go on to big things, you know. They they're virtually unknown at the time, but I think what we've learned with the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is a lot of people who've been in that have gone on to big things. So some of them, I think, less for Friday the Thirteenth, apart from someone it, like Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon, you know. But I think the longer it goes on, yeah, yeah, no, definitely, the less famous. I mean, I can't think of anyone from this that went on to a huge... No. Like, a, a really cool career. Yeah. You know, and we've mentioned a lot of films. I guess this is the one but, that launched Kane Hodder. Yeah. So, I mean, amongst the horror community. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, as much as I love Golden Girls and Murder, She Wrote, I, I don't think that's, you know, paying for Terry K- Kisses, Kaiser's bills no. right now, are they? Well, let's talk about our feature presentation. Friday, May 13th. It's Jason. Versus Tina. Don't go in there! The match made in hell. There goes the neighborhood. Friday the 13th, part 7. The New Blood, rated R. Starts Friday, May 13th at a theatre near you. We start with a voiceover. There's a legend round here. A killer buried, not dead. A curse. <laughs> Is he from Yorkshire? <laughs> a curse on Crystal Lake. A death curse. Jason Voorhees curse. Uh, you might know who this is. Let me go back a bit. A death curse. They say he died as a boy, but he keeps coming back. Few have seen him and lived. Some have even tried to stop him. No one can. People forget he's down there waiting. That was me doing a terrible accent that turned into a northern accent. But in the film, that was Walt Gorney in his final role. Crazy Ralph himself doing the voiceover over clips on a previously on Friday the 13th style montage. Uh, that, yeah. The last one we get, unfortunately, because I love these. I really, really love it. It's, it had such a charming thing to the film. I just, I think we need more of them. I suppose when VHS took off, it wasn't necessary. Well, yeah. Because the idea is that people potentially have bought it on VHS yeah. and don't need to be up on anything yeah um it's it also is, like it is we kind know... of previously but also not really explaining anything <laughs> it's also like we know chris Barker's is going to come for our continuity a few years later so uh, this is uh showing that we've we've kept a, a steady story we promise I d- yeah <laughs> i don't think there's a problem with the continuity you said that very loosely 
But very loosely what? Tied together. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, they are really, aren't they? It, it does, you know, I, I do wonder what the girl from part three is doing <laughs> when all this has taken place. Now, when you look at it like that, that's actually, that's very true. I do wonder, like, where has she gone? I'm why why isn't she told anyone? Yeah. Why are people going back to this place? I'm waiting for the Friday the 13th Survivors group. So yeah, yeah. When they all take down Jason together. At least there's a little more consistent with A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. You, you have, you know, at least they have the decency to kill Nancy off and be like, okay, she's gone. Um, but then obviously you get to part six, but you know. Yeah. Who am I to judge? <laughs> Three months after Tommy Jarvis uh, trapped the resurrected Jason Voorhees at the bottom of Crystal Lake, a young girl named Tina Shepard is staying with her parents at their vacation home. She witnesses her alcoholic father, John, physically abusing her mother and attempts to leave in a boat. He sees her heading out onto the water and follows. Apologising for his actions and asking him to come back. And she says, go away, I hate you, I wish you were dead. With about as much energy as that. And Yeah, God bless her. The, um, the little Tina is played by uh, Jennifer... <laughs> <Name and> Shamer. <laughs> Jennifer Banco, who you may know from Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, The little girl in that, yes. And Barb Wire as well. So yeah. two... Um, podcast films. Podcast films. Um... Tina's dormant telekinetic abilities emerge due to her anger towards John, and she accidentally destroys the dock he's standing on, causing him to fall into the lake and drown. Good for her. For now, good for her. Let's make something really, really clear from the get-go. It's just so weird that domestic abuse is used as a plot point here. It is weird. She's a child. Yeah. The idea is that she feels, as a teenager, guilty about this moment. Uh She feels terrible about it. She can't get over it. Surely, as a child, a more childish reason for her anger would suit the story better. Yeah. If it was she wasn't allowed ice cream and she went and she was, you know, she got angry. She didn't know what she was doing. And accidentally killed her father. Mm-hmm. This whole alcoholic domestic abuse thing is stupid. Handled beyond belief. Handled abysmally as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Um, if you've not seen this film, you might not believe us when we say where this film's going. Yeah. At the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I promise you, everything we're saying is is the truth. Um, seven years later, Tina continues to struggle with the remorse she feels for inadvertently causing her father's death and was institutionalised for a time. Also, Dream warrior. Oh, sorry. This, the timeline on this franchise is fucking wild. So you've got the first film where Jason's a child. Yeah. Um, and then in the second one, he's like 50 years old. Yes, he is. He's massive growth spurt. Uh-huh. Um, two and three days apart. Um, three and four minutes apart. Great. But in the first film... Yeah. And I don't wish to defend it, but isn't that just how... How Alice sees Alice it? Yeah, sees that's fair it. enough. Because he shouldn't have been, like, in the 50s. In the 50s, he was a child. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely fair enough. I get it. So, you know, we could say they're back-to-back, same year. You know, yeah. fair enough. 
Um, then between four and five, it's older Tommy Jervis. And obviously he looks like he's in the 60s, but he's meant to be a teenager. Yes. So that's another good 10 years past. So we're already in the 90s by this point. Yes. If we're going by when the first one was uh-huh. released. Yeah. Then he's about another five years older. Yeah. In uh, part six. Yeah. If we're still counting part five, which apparently it does. Yeah. So then you get to this point and you've got Tina as a child in part six, which is late 90s. And then this is seven years later. You, you're going into the 2000s now and not a single person has a fucking mobile phone. No. Um, and very, very and Everyone's 80s. very 80s. I wish people dressed like this in the 2000s. Absolutely. But sadly not. They really either didn't think about the timings or they just... Uh, it didn't mean anything. It just didn't mean anything. Well, of course, they wouldn't know what it was going to be like in the future. No, they... Apparently, according to IGN, yeah, yeah, this film is set in nineteen ninety seven. But then that begs the question: When was the first one set? Nineteen seventy nine. That makes no sense at all. That they, Tommy, they did that, figure it that out. Tommy Jarvis gap between four and five is fucking drastic. No, because yeah, which is confusing because. So, part three, part four is the day after, isn't it? Part three. The same day. The same day. Yeah. So then it starts. It starts five, literally the second that one ends. So then part five is, I think, meant to be three or four years later. And then part six is potentially right after part five. If, in that case, and I'm sure we would have mentioned this on the episode, that's fucking alarming that Tommy Jarvis looks so fucking <laughs> Yeah. Do you know why? <laughs> because the actor was in his 40s. Yeah, no. <laughs> because, um, oh my God, what's his name? Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman, by that point, would Big have been star. a little too expensive. Yeah. And they wanted to keep it at two and a half million pounds per film. And now he's begging to be back in the franchise. How weird how times change. It's, it's a shame. Um, I don't think we've got time to talk about no. child actors, unfortunately. Um, so as part of her ongoing therapy, Tina's mother, Amanda, takes her back to the house on Crystal Lake, where her psychiatrist, Dr. Cruz, awaits them. Bad news, Cruz. Unbeknownst to Amanda, Cruz plans to experiment with Tina's abilities and bring them forth via verbally assaulting her. <laughs> true. <laughs> to disturb her already fragile mental state in order to exploit her. Next door to the Shepherd residence is a group of teens who are preparing for a surprise birthday party, a surprise birthday party for their friend, Michael. The group consists of Michael's cousin, Nick, Preppy Russell and his girlfriend Sandra, Ben and his girlfriend Kate, science fiction writer Eddie, Stoner David, Perky Robin, Shy Maddie, and snobby socialite Melissa. Rest in peace. Oh, wait. Susan Sullivan, who uh, was remembered as a sweet person with, with a kind and humble character, the documentary Camp Crystal Lake says this um, when it reported in 2012 the actress Susan Jennifer Sullivan had passed away from cancer in Randolph, Massachusetts in 2009. Only problem is they tracked the wrong fucking woman. Susan Jennifer Sullivan still lives in Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. So awkward. 
And on the documentary, they're like, yeah, she was such a kind soul. God rest her soul. Oh, poor, poor Susan. It's like, well, I mean, you clearly don't know her that well. She's still alive. That's literally one Google search. Like, they literally just, the first thing that came up was, oh, that's a real shame. Let's put a little tribute to her in the documentary. And it's a good documentary. Yeah. Um, Not as good as uh, Never Sleep Again. Um, But it's a good documentary. But bloody hell, that's an oversight. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think she watched it? Why did no one ask me to be in this? I mean, yeah, no. She lived, she served cunt, she died... They got the wrong woman. She lived. She, she, she died lived. again. She lived. <laughs> and now she lives. Uh, and I live for Melissa. Um, Tina's like, hi. And Melissa's like, there goes the neighbourhood. <laughs> Nick, in his short shorts, uh, goes up to Tina. She's like, fat uh, queen. And... <laughs> but she's not... At, do you know, at first she might as well have called him the Esler. She's horrible she to him. She is. Um, well, he helps. She drops she all drops the all, shit. Yeah. And he helps her pick it up. Yeah. And she's like, great. Thanks for the help. Don't know what I'll do without you. Oh, my God. No, all I, th- right. I think it's because... Does he pick up her knickers or something to show everyone? Or something like that? Well, not to show everyone. Or like a, a double just... ender or something like that. <laughs> something that embarrasses her in front of everyone. Well, he hands her a clothes up and she's so rude to him. And then the next scene you see them together, like, oh, hi. And the gal pals. I'm like, what's... What's this about? Anyway. Hormones. Dr. Cruz films Tina in his office. She's only just got there. He films her in his office while she's impatiently trying to get her to move things with her mind. Mm-hmm. He keeps yelling in her face. And I mean, he's fucking screaming in her face until she eventually moves a piece of paper on the table. And she's like, I did that because I was thinking of you. <laughs> And uh, he's like, the only reason you're here, Tina, is because of your guilt of your father's death. And she's like, that's bullshit. And the paper sets on fire. It's Carrie. It's ca- um, yeah, let's make something very clear. She's no sissy space heck. I'm We're all so- sorry about I'm what happened to you, Rena. Sorry. It's Tina. <laughs> Tina tells her mum <laughs> <Stop>. how... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what happened to you, Aquamarina? It's Tina! <laughs> the smash hit film starring Emma Roberts. And... That's Aquamarine. Oh. Tina, it? yeah, it is. Tina tells her mum, everyone forget about it, let's move on. Tina tells her mum how much she misses her abusive alcoholic father <laughs> before storming off when Dr. Cruz enters the room. Now, this is the start of it. This whole thing, like, she killed her dad because he was an abusive alcoholic and was abusing her mother. Yes. yes. But now she's like, oh, I miss him so much. <laughs> Kindest heart. Bless him. I'm glad that <laughs> her mother doesn't say, I miss him too much. No, she's like, what she's the like, fuck um, is wrong with you? Yeah, she's, no, she's, she's like, okay, dear. <laughs> I fucking don't. So, oh, maybe I should call that adoption agency. Yeah. Um, she goes to the same dock where her father died, has a flashback to her father's death. <laughs> Bizarre series of events. It's so camp. She's like, she, oh, father, come back. She's like, wishing the father back to life. And she's like, daddy. I shit you not. Her calling out daddy awakens Jason. <laughs> he obviously responds to daddy. She didn't know that. Her mistake. Hate when that happens. I don't think anyone knew that in 1988. <laughs> didn't know he was that old. Um, But daddy Jason, he's back to life. He's back to life, and she passes out next to the lake because of this. 
uh, and tries telling Dr. Cruz and her mother about it. They don't believe it. They're just yeah. full of shit. He comes back to it. Doesn't kill her. <laughs> doesn't. No. You know. Just like, so I'm just going to leave you there. Like, uh, my biggest threat in the film, entire like... film. I'm going to leave you there. Yeah. You know, apparently to the poster, she was waiting for him. That's bullshit. It's just... um, but what a camp series of events. Accidentally bringing Jason back by calling him daddy, <laughs> thinking that's her dad. How fucking ridiculous. That makes Freddy being pissed on by a dog look normal. Like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely... The more you think about it, the the reality of that situation, fucking ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nick and Tina become attracted to one another. <laughs> Um, and he invites her to attend Michael's party, much to Melissa's annoyance. Uh, yes, Melissa clearly has the hots for Nick. Yeah, but um, I not the wrong tree. And you know she's the villain because she's a woman who knows what she wants. Yeah. So, therefore, she is the main bitch. Yeah. Is she... <laughs> I, I don't know, I suppose Dr. Cruz is also the villain. And then also Jason is the villain. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <clears throat> but do you know who isn't the villain? Melissa, the alcoholic no. uh, wife beater. That, that well, yeah. he's he's not the villain. The film really misunderstands Melissa. Um, yeah, criminally misunderstands her. All she wants is a bit of dick, and she is treated like she is worse than fucking Jason Voorhees because of this. Like it's like, oh my god, this woman, how dare she know what she wants with this man who's not actually tied down to anyone? So what? The, fucking matter yeah I suppose obviously they're going for Chris from Carrie yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah they are they are this is, well, um, but I swear Melissa serves the house down booth I am fucking living for her character and I just I couldn't get enough of her the difference is um Carrie was actually really likeable and we really felt for her <laughs> yeah in Carrie but I have to say Tina is Dull as dishwater. Yeah, she's, she's so dull. And her constant obsession with trying to bring her abusive alcoholic oh, father oh. back from the dead. Sorry, Hearn. I'm with the girl who it, Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you are kind of like, yeah, Melissa, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> but she doesn't. Tell her. She's actually, still a man. Well, no, I suppose there are a couple of moments where it's like, okay, that's really mean, but she's overall not that bad. Just a bit. Yeah, I don't know. We don't condone bullying, by the way, on this podcast. <laughs> Meanwhile, Michael and his girlfriend Jane have car trouble and decide to hike the rest of the way to the cabin and their friends. When Michael stops to have a piss, uh, Jason murders Jane with a knife to the back of the head before pinning her to the tree with a knife through her throat. Then Michael, he kills him by throwing his knife into his back, lifting him up with it and throwing him back to the ground. Now, that sounds like two great kills there. You barely see a fucking thing. Yeah. Yeah, I I think um, Gary's description does it way too much justice than necessary because it's, like I said, dry. Yeah. It's... And the thing is, the description for all of them, all the kills in this film are going to sound great because they're great kills just absolutely watered down. Yeah. Yeah. Tina arrives at the party... 
And yeah. as soon as she walks in, fucking Eddie harasses her. He grabs her. He's like, what do you think of Starlycon? 30,000 years into the future, the entire galaxy is populated by highly evolved protoza. Good, huh? Only one human being and his woman still exists among the stars. What a fucking nightmare. I would like, I'm out of here. No, I'm, Nick, you're really not worth this. Goodbye. I would be out of there. Um, yeah, but Tina is absolutely nothing about her, so she just... Yeah, just like, yeah, whatever. Just, you know, she's, it's not even... Tina is not even doing her dance. No. Whilst John's looking for romance. No. Paul is not getting down on the floor. <laughs> Hannah is not screaming out for more. Not yet. Um, our Lord and Saviour, Melissa, shows up and she's uh, like, Hi, I'm Melissa. And Tina's like, Oh, I'm Tina from next door. And she's like, I know. <laughs> and then... She provides us with a monologue about her fucking pearl necklace. Yes. In the background, nonetheless, she goes up to her friends and they're like, oh my God, I love your pearl necklace. Is it real? She's like, they're real. On my last birthday, my daddy goes, Melissa, you're the perfect daughter. <laughs> and he gives me these and says, to the best little girl in the whole world. Girl, fucking slaying your pearl necklace. Ye- yes. You are the perfect daughter and the best little girl in the whole world. What do you think to her friends. hair? The fuck Bob? Yeah. <laughs> well, leaves a lot to be desired. I love the pearl necklace. She's Princess Di before Princess Di was a thing. Um, this is what can... Oh, was she? Was Wait, Pr- was Princess, Princess Diana Di- was prominent this time? Right? Yes, of course. Oh, that's definitely what she was going for. Diana. She definitely the, the Sally Webster, the whole outfit, the, the blue. Died. Oh my god! Yeah, she absolutely, and that just even more of a slave. <laughs> um, my problem with this film, I've got a few of them, um, but a big problem I have is the friends don't feel like friends. No, these are all just pieces of meat for Jason to yeah. chop. Yeah, that's all they are there for. There's no fucking character development for anyone other than Tina. Like, who is Melissa friends with? Like, who who is her connection with anyone? Yeah. It's, it's Michael's yeah, birthday. Yeah, no one likes her. So they all have a connection to Michael. Yeah. Because yeah, it's his birthday. Or Michael's girlfriend. But the problem is, they're dead. They got yeah. nothing. They got no development whatsoever. So they're goners. Yeah. So their connection, these friends, their connection to each other means nothing. Mm -hmm. And there are very little scenes where anyone ever acknowledges each other's passing. Or is there a single one? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. No, it's it's really bizarre. It's probably the one, and there are a lot of disposable characters in this franchise, but this is the one where I think everyone gets the least amount. They haven't even got, well, they've got their little stereotypes things, but don't get that much time to play on them. No. No. That's the problem. Like they're mentioned once, and that's it. And then you have characters like um, Ben and Kate. Yeah. Who have nothing. They're not even at no. this party. No. You don't see them until the next day. Yeah. And they literally have, like, what, three scenes? Uh, a, a mild argument. Yeah. Um. Ben and Kate, they're black. Yeah. Um. The other characters teens are white the white men are all brunettes and they all look the same uh, do you not think they're indistinguishable they do. They do. apart from yeah. eddie who wears this um khaki jacket no even he's fucking, but even he they all look yeah. the same 
there's one, you know, once he loses that jacket, he's like, he's that same thing. Exactly. Else. And they're yeah. all so interchangeable, all the characters are. And it is, you know, okay, when a slasher film is like that, you know, at least the kills will yeah, help. Yeah. But see, because the kills are yeah. so bad, it's just, okay, see, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And when they do die, I'm I'm not entertained. It's like, oh. Yeah. It's dry. I mean, yeah. in, in every sort of sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Tina... Apart, apart from the uh, Lagrange Stranger sense of the word. <laughs> Tina has a vision of Michael being murdered in the same way he was killed in the woods. She runs away and Nick tries to go after him and Melissa stops him. And she's like, Nick, let me tell you something about women. Yes! <laughs> Tina runs back and whinges to her mother and Dr. Cruz about Jason. And then she starts going on about some fucking large spike in the porch, which they look and it's gone. It's like, okay, well, great. Jason in this film literally pulls weapons out of his arsehole. <laughs> I mean, where is he keeping these weapons? Where is he finding it's them? True. I'm so confused. It's true. Like, his knife that he came out of the water with. Bitch, you didn't have a knife in the last film. Where the fuck's that come from? Exactly. His machete. Fair enough. He gets it from some campers that he kills coming up. But the weed whacker. The weed what whacker. What the fuck? Who the fuck left that lying around? No. So dangerous. <laughs> but he just pulls things out of nowhere. But who's... Who's... Go- My question is, why is anyone going to Camp Crystal Lake at all? <laughs> For any prolonged period of time, even enough time to get the weed whacker out. Like, what weeds are you whacking? There's no lawn. <laughs> it's just a cabin in the woods. The amount of people that have died there, like, just leave it. Le- just, just leave, leave it. the grass to grow. Just it's don't fine. Go anywhere it's fine. Near. Just leave the place. Too many people. Don't go have and perished. stay there. Like, seriously, by this point, it's a freakishly large amount of numbers. Yeah. That 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 have died there. Just leave it. It's fine. It's not worth it. And there's no supernatural element to a lot of them either. Maybe part six. You were like, oh, oh, yeah, part six it is. How yeah. was that Jason? Yeah. Um, but Roy was a real <laughs> human being. Yeah. Um, in part four, they treated Jason as a real human being. Yeah. Um, Pamela Voorhees was a real human yeah. being. That's three stomach. killers. That's three killers. Three killers you've had now, guys. Leave <laughs> it alone. Place. It's not that nice. There are other lakes you can go to. Um, Dan and his girlfriend uh, are out camping in the woods. Who are Dan and his girlfriend? Who knows? Completely random people. And uh, she's like, I'm cold. And he's like, well, uh, what are you crawling the sack? And she's like, well, yeah, go and get some wood and we'll start a fire. So she sends him off and he does a Terminator impression. Like, I'll be back. And like, oh my God, wow, we really are in 1988. Well, he asks um, where he's going to get wood from. Yeah. And she says, we're in the forest. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. Jason... This, this is the humour of the film, by the yeah. way. This is the humour. When uh, when he goes to find the wood, uh, Jason punches his arm through Dan's chest and snaps his neck. Yeah. Again, barely see a thing. Yeah. And then we go back to the tent and his girlfriend's there. She's like, okay, you big hunk of a man, come get me. Jason does as requested. Uh, he rips open the tent. And also, by the way, that line of dialogue and the editing with Jason coming in after, fucking genius. It is. It is very good. Uh, he rips open the tent, pulls her out through her sleeping bag. She's in the sleeping bag still. 
and whacks her against the tree just once, killing her. This is inspired by the screenwriter's urges to kill his own sister. Uh, he said, I used to shove my brother into a sleeping bag when I was a kid. I once had a fantasy of killing my kid's sister the same way. Oh my god. I guess that's why it became so popular. People can relate to it. No, you fucking weirdo. No one can relate to no it. That's can. why it's popular. <laughs> Kane Hodder said he had difficulty with the scene um, because the dummy and fake blood inside was heavier than he thought it would be. The scene required a number of retakes because he kept swinging as hard as he could, but no matter how hard he swung, uh, he couldn't get it to look right. By the final take, he was so fed up with the situation that he had dropped the bag, kicked it angrily, and this is a shot that uh, appears in the film. Yeah, it works. It's so good. It's simple but effective. It's something we hadn't seen Kane Hodder's favourite on-screen kill that he's done. Yeah, um, yeah. It looks really good. Um... It's a highlight of the film. It is. It's probably the most memorable kill of the film. Yeah. It's just such a shame that it's just one hit. It's kind of like, okay, that killed her. Really? Yeah, I su- well, I suppose. And yeah, obviously it was meant to be good more. swing yeah, it against is. a tree. It looks great. And it was it meant to be more. Yeah. It was meant to be multiple ones and more gory. But I think it kind of works. It's almost comical. Yeah. It wouldn't have looked too out of place in part six. Yeah, that's true. The next day, Eddie is talking nerdy again whilst the girls are just laughing at him whilst he's talking. He's like, Derek F. C. Sims' greatest film, The Battle of the Gargantuan Fungar. It was a work of genius. Don't take my word for it. That's Ben. <laughs> he was there. Ben is fucking mortified. He's so embarrassed and he pretends to not know a single thing about it. And because of this, Kate is fuming with him. Kate is fuming because he went to see Fungar. Yeah. After cancelling a date with her. Oh, okay. That's what. That's why uh-huh. he's mortified, because poor old Kate was left at home yeah. whilst he was gone on watching some sci-fi films around Eddie's place. Let's be honest. Mm. Ben is either a homosexual or bisexual. Um, he. Definitely, out of all of them, he's the biggest queer-coded one because he has this. He has a scene coming up where another one of the male characters slowly strokes his shoulder mm. and gives him the look. Mm. And then later on when he's having sex with Kate, he stops it. He stops getting on with her because he thinks Michael's arrived. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Mm. Um. Someone says, has anyone seen Nick? And uh, someone else says... Robin. This is like... I think he went next door to see Marilyn Munster. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Nick and Tina get to know each other. Which is a other. bit weird because Marilyn Munster was the pretty blonde one in the Munsters. Yeah. The, the <laughs> joke was that Marilyn Munster looked like Marilyn Monroe, uh-huh. and the others looked like the Munsters. Yeah. <laughs> Nick and Tina get to know each other a little better when she trauma dumps on him about her dead dad and Doctor Cruz. <laughs> Um, just also, Robin um, very harshly tells Maddie that David will never be interested in her <laughs> as she needs a little touch-up first. Because <laughs> she has glasses. Because she has glasses. Um, Melissa spies on the little heart-to-heart between Nick and Tina and uh, they have a kiss, but Melissa doesn't really react. She uh, Tina goes around later and she's like, have you seen Nick? And Melissa's like, he's around. Dip. And then offers some guacamole. <laughs> There's a lot of Iconic. where's Nick in this film. Where's yeah. Nick? Where's Nick gone? Where is Nick? 
Melissa and Eddie pull Cruising up. Cruising in the woods. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> With Ben. But in the camp in Camp Crystal Lake. Melissa and Eddie pull Sorry, a prank on Tina by pretending Eddie is in a straight jacket. Yep. And Melissa's like, hey, Tina, isn't this what they wear in the jet for their jackets in the mentalist hospital? <laughs> uh, this causes... Now that's mean. I mean, we don't <laughs> condone that kind of bullying. No. This causes Tina to break Melissa's pearl necklace with her powers before heading back home in embarrassment. The pearl necklace... Saddest death in the film. Rest in peace. And never to be mentioned again. No one, no one's, no one questions why this bomb no. has exploded. She hysterically tells Dr. Cruz and her mother about it. Her mother suggests they go home and Dr. Cruz just starts screaming at everyone again. Um, so Tina telekinetically throws a TV at him. <laughs> so camp. This is, this is high camp. <laughs> that television. <laughs> and she's like, oh, and he's like, oh. <laughs> And the television's like, oh. Nick comes over and Tina asks for a picture of Michael. Conveniently, for some reason, Nick keeps a picture of his cousin in his wallet. And Tina's like, yeah, he's dead. <laughs> he's like, okay. I, d- I don't... I, and maybe Cousins was a cover. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe they're not actually Cousins. Because um, it's not even a picture of him with Michael. It's no. a picture of Michael and his girlfriend. His girlfriend in his wallet, <laughs> for some reason. Um, so... Also, how could she even tell? All the men look the same in this fucking film. I know, I know. Could have been anyone. Well, speaking of, Russell and Sandra are about to go skinny dipping. Ooh. And he says... Who? <laughs> Who are these characters? He says, when did you first fall in love with me? And she says, the first time I saw the size of your beautiful wallet. It was the first time I saw that huge bulge in your pants. It was calling out to me. Sandra, Sandra, take me now. You can tell that was written by the guy who did the erotic thrillers. Oh, you definitely can. And then as she's going in, skinny dipping, she's like, you need a formal invitation? Wrestle, party for two. Right this way, please. <laughs> she's a queen. Heidi Kozak plays yeah. uh, plays her. And she was in Society and yeah. Slumber Party Massacre too. Nice. Two films better than this. Um, Jason arrives at the cabin and uh, the the teens are now going to start dropping like flies. First up are skinny dippers. He uh, hits Russell in the face with an axe. Yeah. And he drowns uh, Sandra. He does his uh, teleporting underwater thing. He does because we needed some teeny. Yeah. Um, Just to spite. That didn't need to be cut. That didn't. No. Well, it's only a bit of nudity. Not really much sex in this. Well, I suppose there's one scene, mm. but it's not really sexy. Sex, no. is it? Um, yeah, Sandra gone too soon. Yeah, we barely knew the. Yeah, and she doesn't even get her corpse to reappear later either. Does she not? No. Oh no. Um, Nick confronts Melissa. I, I seriously, when I think about it, I could imagine that some of these friends. The actors or actresses may not have actually met each other. No, no. If the scenes were just filmed independently, yeah, and they're like, "Well, we don't need you on set until this day, mm-hmm. and you do three days, and then you're gone." I genuinely feel like some of the actors and actresses just never met. Yeah, and they were meant to be playing friends. Yeah, yeah. No, that would make sense. When I th- I, yeah. Wouldn't surprise me when I think about it. 
Because I don't think Sandra and that share scenes with Ben and Kate, do they? Oh, yeah, they do, because um, Russell's the one who strokes his shoulder. Oh, okay. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I'm confused. I think everyone in the film gets to me, even if some points not in the same time as others. Oh. Yeah. Um, Melissa is being confronted by Nick. She continues trying to steal his affection, but he tells her it's not going to happen. Mm. He says, what was that crappy porn on Tina this afternoon? And she's like, that chick's crazy. Besides, all's was fair in love and war. Like, Tina, I don't even like you. I like men. And she's like, <laughs> he doesn't, unfortunately. Um, and uh, she says, like has nothing to do with it. <laughs> I don't, I just don't understand this part of Melissa's character. Well, she makes him jealous by kissing none over there and that fucking nerd, Eddie. But she tries to make him jealous. Yeah. This is what I do After he says he's not interested in her. And it, yes, she, she's a sleigh and she's a, she's a camp queen. And one of the highlights of the film. But it doesn't make any sense no. that she is so up herself. Yeah. But, you know, keeps embarrassing herself by being turned down by Nick. Yeah. I just, I, just, I don't get this. It's strange. And I think it's something that I, a problem I have with the whole film is that the writers don't know how to write female characters. No. And it comes across uh, weird. Yeah. And there are parts of the film, and I'll explain better later, that do you feel like I'm against women? Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I'm sure that's not the intention, but a lot of the women are so badly written uh-huh. that it's like, ugh, yeah. you know? Oh, God, did, did you ask a single woman? I mean, I understand that the producer was a woman and she was really getting mm-hmm. involved, but seemingly not in this aspect. No. Of the characterization no. of women. Because why would she just keep embarrassing herself yeah. like that? But she's the bad guy. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a little confusing. But she slays. So she does. I'll let you, I'll let you off. <laughs> Dr. Cruz goes for a stroll in the woods and finds Michael's corpse whilst Amanda snoops around his office and discovers the tapes of Cruz mentally abusing her daughter. She confronts him about it when he gets back and she's like, you bastard, you brought her here just so you could see her perform. Girl, I wish she was performing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Valid. We could really do with that right now. It's a valid criticism. We could do with some Raven Simone faces. Oh, you know, yes. something like that. Just you wouldn't even know she's using a telekinesis. <laughs> Tina, uh, Tina herself, speaking of the devil, goes back to her house after spending some time with Nick, but overhears Doctor Cruz telling Amanda that he plans to have her permanently institutionalized for the safety of herself and others, mm. and though he just wants her to use her to get famous. Uh, what the famous wooden woman? Yeah, but like, how would he get famous from her telekinesis? Because he discovered it. Patriarchy. Ask Ellen Burstyn. She um, steals her mother's car and uh, flees, but crashes down the road when she has another vision. This time of Jason murdering her mother. The scene that I watched and changed my life when I was younger. And uh, I'm sad. Before stumbling out of the car and running off, Maddie attempts to win uh, David's affection by dressing herself up like an absolute fucking queen. She's giving um, Linda Blair 
Yeah. Who is dressing up for an office party. Yeah? Do you mean a in police the office party in a film where she's in prison? No, yes. It's... Oh my God, of course. Yeah. When she tries... Yeah, when she's When she getting... tries to seduce the... Uh... No, she's getting prostituted at the party. She's getting prostituted? Yeah. Oh. Am I thinking of... No, it's definitely the outfit. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely the outfit. Remember yeah, in the yeah. film. Yeah, in um, Chained Heat. Yeah, Sex Broker Linda Blair. Yeah. Um, well, no. Well, no, not really, because the money's not going to her. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that is exactly I what she said. I need to watch that film again. That is what she said. Former podcast episode. Yes. Yes. Um, she says, need a little touch-up work, my ass, after giving herself a touch-up. Yeah, no, this is what confuses me because she has just given herself a makeover. Mm-hmm. Um, she looks a million times better. Yeah. Because she's taken her glasses off. <laughs> like... Put a bit of makeup on. It's incredible. Um, did she take her glasses off before putting the makeup on? Because that's a really good did, makeup yeah. job. She did. If she's taken her glasses off They're first. off. They're, yeah. Um, so if Robin didn't mean makeup... And yeah. a makeover when she said touch up. Uh huh. Did she mean plastic surgery? Potentially, because that is because she's full glam. Yeah. But if if she's saying touch up work my ass, mm. so she's insinuating that the the glam isn't the touch up. So the yeah. real touch up would be a facelift. Yeah. Like, oh my god. <laughs> Gosh. That's really hard. Like she's a teenager. She yeah. didn't need a facelift. No. At all. She's a beautiful young woman. And you are no friend of hers if you're talking like that. Well, and again, you know, they're not friends. None of these people no. are friends. She goes out looking for a man. Um, but instead, she finds Russell's body. She runs for help, but is cornered by Jason in the barn and killed with a sickle. Which would be really sad if we cared. Yeah. It would be know? really cool if we could see it happen. Yes. Um... It's a character we're meant to feel sorry for her. Yeah. But we don't really, because she's only had like three scenes. Uh-huh. So, okay. Tina continues rushing through the woods and bumps into Nick, telling him they need to find her mum, whilst uh, Amanda and Cruz find Tina's car and then search for her. Uh, Jason then kills Ben by crushing his head, followed by Kate driving a fucking party horn through her eye. Yes. With the sound effects of the party horn going off. Yes, which is which is really cool. This is another standout kill. Yeah, um, and this is kind of, I'm I'm not really berating anyone because they didn't realize that the MPA were going to cut cut cut. No. Um, but if they kind of knew they were going to get those cuts, it's these kind of kills that stand out. You know, yeah. make it silly. Yeah, you know, it it's a memorable image. For a not very memorable character. Yeah. Melissa almost sleeps with Eddie and then changes her mind. And she says, you just don't turn me on, really. At least I gave you a chance. You just didn't come through. Eddie is gutted. Uh, He finds out a plan to make Nick jealous uh, and goes for a date with a soap on the rope instead. Yeah. He goes, rejection. Okay, fine. I can take it. I've been rejected by some of the finest science fiction magazines <laughs> in the continental United States. Um, Yeah, and then he says he's going to take a cold shower and he's got a date with a soap on a rope. Yeah. Um, 
really forward of mm-hmm. this film to have a science fiction nerd yeah. not wear glasses. I know, yeah. Which is so progressive. Yeah. Woke even. <laughs> I would I would describe this film as woke. Yeah. To have a nerd for twenty twenty vision. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. For nineteen eighty eight, yeah. that's really forward. And, and he'd be the age now where he'd be using words like woke. So <laughs> he started it all by not wearing those glasses. Oh. Meanwhile, in the woods, Tina and Nick find Michael's corpse. And uh, after cutting the power and entering the house, Jason stabs David in the stomach with a knife. Nick and Tina go back to the house where she's been staying, the, you know, her house where she killed her dad. They go into Dr. Cruz's office and discover Tina's father's old newspaper clippings of the Crystal Lake murders in 1984. And she comes to the realization that the man she resurrected and is killing everyone is indeed Jason. (gasps) I can't believe it took that much for me to fucking realize. Uh, Why does he have these clippings, by the way? It's never explained. She gives Nick her father's old handgun, which was next to the clippings. Was he like... No. He's no one familiar with him. No, no. No, was he going to kill and kill blame Jason? Jason? Mm. Her dad. Like, her dad, was he going to kill her mum and blame it on Jason? Maybe. I mean, I think you've just fought more intent than the film Maybe, itself, maybe. I don't, bad, yeah. What, why he has the... Are you sure it's her dad's clippings? Yeah. And not Dr. Cruz's clippings? Well, it's her dad's old... I mean, it probably is Dr. Cruz. It might be Dr. Yeah. Cruz. Because doesn't she also but then find that makes the even spike? Less sense. Yeah, she finds the spike as well. So she knows that Dr. Cruz is gaslighting her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a, oh very modern. Very style. layered. Very modern. <laughs> very very layered. prestige. Whoa. Very prestige. <laughs> Fellini could have directed it. Um, yeah, she gives Nick her dad's old gun and has a telekinetic attack, which starts uh, shaking... Attack. Starts shaking the office, and Nick thinks nothing to it whatsoever. (laughs) Eddie reads out Tina's birthday card to Michael and opens up his penis enlarger gift before calling Melissa a cunt. Yes. I was like, well, she's serving cunt. You almost got it right. Yeah, it's true. Well, she is actually sneaking out at that time. She is. So he must have seen her outfit. Uh Uh-huh. Cunt. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Jason slices Eddie's throat with the machete he took from one of the campers earlier and throws Robin out of a window after she finds David's severed head. Yeah, um, it was done way better in part four. Yeah, the I can't believe this is the second mo. one in the yeah. franchise. The slow-mo throw out the window, way better in part yeah. four. Dr. Cruz and Amanda are found by Jason who chases after them and Cruz uses Amanda as a human shield to save himself, and she is impaled by a brush axe as the Doctor escapes. Ooh, Doctor Cruz. Really evil. Evil Doctor Cruz. Just in case you didn't know already. Every, everyone's against yeah. poor old Tina. Doctor Cruz, Melissa, Jason Voorhees. Yeah. Ooh. Tina heads out to look for her mother, whilst Nick returns next door to warn his friends but discovers most of them are already dead except for Melissa, whom he encounters upon returning to the shepherd's house and insists that they remain there until Tina returns. After searching for a short time, Tina finds Cruz in the woods but runs off when she notices blood on his clothes 
and is told of her mother's fate, though he leaves out that he got her killed. She doesn't even know that he killed her mum. No, she just runs off. <laughs> Jason catches up to Cruz and slices his stomach open with a pole chainsaw, as described as online. This is a weed whacker. Yeah. Again, he's pulled it out of his arsehole. It's just appeared out of nowhere. Yeah. Fucking huge. Yeah. And he kills him with it. He just taps him with it and he's dead. Yeah. That's it. I feel like that's really frustrating because that's the sort of character where you want to see his horrible death. But... Nope. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of the part of the film where it's the end this happened. Yeah. And then this happened. And then this happened. Well, I mean, you say that, there's an I iconic scene it. coming up. Um, first of all, Tina finds Amanda's body. She has a little cry. Uh, and then she encounters Jason in the road near the crashed car. And the showdown begins. She uses her powers to bring tree branches to life and knock Jason into a puddle of water before using a broken power line to electrocute him, which stuns Jason momentarily as Tina runs to the cabin that Nick and his friends were staying at. Jason fucking leaps through the kitchen window. He literally jumps through the window feet first. I don't know how he jumped from that angle. Makes no sense. He pole vaulted with the uh, weed whacker. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. That was... Um, Tina uses her powers again, this time to try and block Jason's path to her and assaults him with various household items, including a plant pot with David's head attached to it. (laughs) Though this only enrages Jason further. I mean, who appreciates having things thrown at them? That's true. She lures Jason out onto the porch and collapses the entire overhanging roof onto him, believing that he's finally dead. Yeah, and this is the start of Kane Hodder's stunt work in the film, like real stunt work. And it's a great showcase for it, actually. And it's another memorable part of the film. Um, Returning to her house, she is comforted by Nick about the death of her mother. She's constantly, where's Nick? She's comforted by Nick. Where's Nick? She's comforted by Nick. Yeah. (laughs) Like, when are they going to just kiss like what is going on the, well, they've already kissed well, I suppose people... they, they, they kissed no, they early did. yeah they did they kissed did early they? in the film oh god that was when good. Melissa was spying on him when she was trauma dumping oh yeah that was memorable um I mean this is a gay man kissing a straight girl there's, okay. there's not much chemistry okay. here we're projecting no he literally is gay Nick the actor's gay yes I'm well aware of that <laughs> but he's an actor do you know what actors do? Yes, but he's not a very good one, no. <laughs> no disrespect to the actor. I'm sure he's a lovely guy, but no one in his performance apart from Melissa gives a good performance. And Kane Hodder. Um, <laughs> Melissa uh, doesn't believe a word that either of them are saying, so she curses at them, goes to leave, only to open the front door, revealing Jason, who survived <gasps> Tina's psychic assault once again. But before that, Melissa is serving in a fucking white suit fucking head to toe queen and Nick's like where are you going she's like back to bed wanna come he's like Melissa stay with us he's like sorry not my style fuck you no no fuck you both and Jason kills Melissa with an axe to the forehead and throws her body and her bad wig across the room then closes the door 
Trapentina and Nick who barely make it upstairs. Yeah, let's just say that wig and axe combo <laughs> on the stunt double is it, something else. <laughs> and then to be thrown... And the white clothes as well. Yeah, and to be thrown over the television yeah. for some reason. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Um, it, It's high camp. It is. It is. With nowhere else to run, Tina uses her abilities to hit Jason in the head with a light fixture, sending him crashing through the stairwell into the basement below. However, as they tried to leave, Jason bursts through the basement door and throws Nick into the wall, knocking him unconscious. Jason attempts to crush Nick's spine with his foot, but Tina saves him by tightening the strap on Jason's hockey mask, which digs into his rotten flesh before splitting in half entirely and revealing the deformed and decaying monster (gasps) beneath. It's pretty Looks cool effect. So good. Yeah. I love this. Like I love this version of Jason. The zombie Jason. Um the makeup effects are fantastic. And Is there a necker for this? There is, yeah. There is. And yeah, it just looks great. It really does. Uh she uses the cord from another light fixture to strangle and hang him before dropping him through the floor and back into the basement. As she tends to Nick, he comes back again. Pulls Tina into the basement as well. Tina sends a barrage of nails into Jason's upper body, then douses him in gasoline, which is ignited by the fire from the furnace. And this is when we get the big stunt. Mm. And it looks amazing. It does look great. As Jason burns, Nick awakens and upon realising that the house will soon explode, retrieves Tina from the basement. Two of them run to the dock and take cover as the house is engulfed in a huge explosion that leaves it nothing but a fiery wreck. Nick comforts Tina again, now over the loss of her childhood home. Yeah, why is she? She's she's it's gone. Like, yeah, you want to get rid of the fucking place? You have nothing but terrible memories here. Yeah, and that's where it should have ended as well. Also. Yeah, that's that should be the point where the film ended. The house explodes. Unfortunately, as they prepare to leave, Jason, who again managed to survive, grabs Tina and throws her further onto the dock in anger. Nick shoots Jason, but is knocked into a boat and again loses consciousness because he's fucking useless. fucking useless. Kill him already. Jason stands above Tina, who again concentrates as she did during his resurrection. I shit you not. In a bizarre series of events... He reaches down to kill her, but a reanimated John, an abusive alcoholic father, breaks through the dock, wraps Tommy's chain back around Jason's neck, and pulls him underwater as Tina passes out once more. Now, the director, uh, the writer has admitted the conclusion, this Tina's dead dad coming back was a mistake. The director thought if they were going to do it, um, he needed to come out looking as decayed. And of course, this was overruled by Barbara Sachs. Honestly, this should not... The writer's right. This is stupid. Yeah, mess. Absolute mess. Why are we having the hero of the film being her dead, abusive, alcoholic father? Yeah. It it, It really makes absolutely no sense whatsoever how has he aged so well he's been dead for seven years exactly also why is tina not the eventual hero in her own story like tina is telekinetic she's the most powerful person that jason has ever yeah come into contact with 
And yet it's her, and I, I will keep saying it because it's the fucking truth, her abusive father yeah. that saves the yeah. day. But there's, it doesn't feel like there's a metaphor there. It doesn't no. feel like may, maybe, you know, the she has conjured this up in her head or, you know, if if the reason at the beginning of the film was more valid, this is her father forgiving her. Yeah. You know, something like that. Go on full supernatural about it, but make it make sense. This makes it's, no sense. No and sense. They, they put no thought into it. And that is terrible for a storyline about an abusive alcohol. Are we father. meant to applaud this man? Yeah. Like, Yay, you saved the day. Hooray. What a load of shite. Yeah. And that, that's another reason why I, I just... The perspective of the film, I just don't think is good towards women. No. I just I'm struggling to find the phrasing for it, but I because I, I don't think it's misogynistic. I just I think it's ignorant. Yeah, and that's the problem. I think uh-huh. it's ignorant to an issue such as domestic violence mm-hmm. and what the connotations of that yeah. and what that truly means, and it's not dealt with at all in the film. It's kind of brushed aside. Mm-hmm. And even worse, the the abusive husband is the eventual saviour. Yeah. Good Lord, what the fuck? Yeah. The following morning, police, firefighters and an ambulance have arrived on the scene. One of the firefighters discovers Jason's broken, charred mask amongst the rubble of the shepherd home, which makes no sense because it's back on his face at the start of the next one. Tina is actually no it's not no I apologize oh. it is not oh. it's not he gets it on um the first little boat doesn't he oh yeah um yeah, yeah okay I'll let you off for that one <laughs> one of the uh, fire yeah he discovers that Tina is uh, loaded into an ambulance where Nick who has just woken up worriedly asks where Jason is but is reassured by Tina <laughs> that, that he... makes a nice change it's usually where's Nick <laughs> Yeah, and then Jason wakes up and like, where's Nick? Where's Nick? <laughs> um, but is reassured by Tina that they took care of him uh, before they're driven off to the hospital. And that is Friday the 13th, part seven, The New Blood. Do you know what I don't like? What? The fact that I think that when she says we, she doesn't mean her and Nick. No. She means her, her and, and dad. her dad. <laughs> the, the dad thing is the worst decision they made in it this franchise. It really is. The franchise that sends Jason to space. This is, this is by far the, the worst, worst decision. decision. <laughs> I guess it ruins the whole film. Yeah. It, ru- yeah. it genuinely ruins the whole film for me. And it wasn't that great to begin with. Mm. Um, this, th- this, in my opinion, isn't the worst film up to this point in the series. No. That would be part five. But for me, it is the least overall entertaining. Mm. And we're talking trash to piece versus, you know, basically this, all that. Um, it's a bit by the numbers. There's a few interesting elements, like the telekinesis. Yeah. But a lot of the time is wasted on throwaway characters mm-hmm. and really, you know, tepid death scenes. Which I feel bad for saying, but it's it's a fact. Yeah, you know, is, I don't work for the MPAA. It's it's a real shame. But this is this is the product you've given me. And this is what I've watched. And it's dry. Yeah. And... Yeah, it, it's a shame. I mean, I still... I like it. I think it's camp. Um, 
I never, I don't know, I'm never really bored throughout. I just, it just does enough. It's the mm. right runtime. Um, I'm just good at it. It wasn't the film it could have been had it not been butchered. Yeah, I suppose for me, I'm not bored. And that, and that ending's unforgivable. I just don't care. Yeah. Yeah, but it's unforgivable. Shall we get to the awards? Yes. Uh, biggest queen, it has to be the perfect daughter herself, Melissa. Melissa, she's a real bitch being in total control of herself. Yeah. She knows what she wants and, you know, she goes for it. Despite the constant embarrassment of being turned down by Nick. Um, biggest gasp. I have Tony. Uh, Tony? Tony. <laughs> Tina's abusive alcoholic father saving the day. Absolutely. They gasped. I actually gasped. Yeah. Best dialogue. I have, okay, you big hunk of a man. Come get me. You need a formal invitation. Russell, party <laughs> for two. Right this way, please. Uh, and that's camp. I have Tina wishing for her abusive alcoholic father to come back to life and awakening Jason Voorhees instead by calling him daddy. <laughs> I went with the axe, the wig, yeah. the TV. Very <laughs> Ratings, I give it six pearl necklaces purchased for the best little girl in the world out of ten. I gave it five little touch-ups out of ten. Masterpiece, trash to be trash. <laughs> Which sounds really creepy, actually. <laughs> that is a little creepy. That's, that doesn't sound right. You know, in the context of the film... <laughs> <laughs> a masterpiece trash to be trash basic or a camp old bunch of fun I think it's basic I went with a camp old bunch of fun I, it, there are moments but I think overall it's a bit basic it's available on DVD Blu-ray video on demand and Paramount Plus and if you enjoy this obviously just check out Carrie yes and if you watch Carrie then check out The Fury yeah <laughs> a more telekinesis yeah. Brian De Palma goodness We'll be back for another Friday, the 13th episode on the 13th of September, 2024, when we'll be discussing, <laughs> I don't know what you're laughing for, we'll be discussing oh, no. Jason Takes oh. Manhattan. I might quit before that. <laughs> I'm going to have to get another, you're going to have to get another co-host. We're hitting the low. Oh, real, I, one of my, no, no, I'll say it, you'll forget by next year. One of my most hated films. Yeah. Oh, I detest it. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, if you also share such strong feelings against Jason Takes Manhattan, <laughs> let us know on social media. We're Horrorcourt Trash over on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and Horrorcourt Trash on Twitter. I'm Gaz 92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, and gazcruise 92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker 823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. We're also Gasparafest across all social media. Go check that out and see what it's all about. Give us a rate, review, or subscribe on iTunes, like and follow on everything else. Next week on Tuesday, we'll be continuing Five Weeks at Freddy's, which Jason has briefly interrupted, uh, with A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 5, The Dream Child. Hey. It's a boy. It's a boy. <laughs> oh, Freddy Krueger. Pretend Kruger's... I didn't say that. I'm going to use that in the episode. Freddy Krueger's gender reveal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, so we're back same time, same place on Tuesday. But if you only listen to these episodes, we're back same time, same place in September. <laughs> Bye. Bye.